So we have affirmed in the last couple of weeks the doctrine of God's immutability. He is the perfect, simple, pure spirit that does not change. And again, I'm not going back over the material to defend the doctrine of God's immutability. It's very, very clear, uh, both in terms of the, uh, the scriptural texts themselves and also the theological understandings of God's being as that perfect, pure, simple spirit. These things necessitate the doctrine of God's immutability. But, again, I said, there are those who ask some questions about this. If God is eternally the same, surely then in creation we're seeing a change in God. And the thing is, God is doing something for the first time. So God is eternally God, but now, language is used, now God is creator. We touched this last time, and I made the point that God's immutability does not render God inactive. It doesn't mean that God doesn't act in certain ways or do things for the first time stepping into history. But it doesn't undermine the doctrine of God's immutability. God's first work of creation does not make him a creator. He is eternally the creator. He doesn't become creator when he creates. Creation is part of his one eternal, perfect, simple will. He's got this, uh, this thought in his, in his eternal mind, if you like, of creation. It doesn't begin. There's no starting point. Yes, the, the act occurs in history, but it is eternally in the mind of the unchanging God. You know, it's, it's like someone, they go, they go through college and they, they train in construction. And they, uh, they decide to themselves, well, I'm going I'm to build a house. Well, they don't become a builder just when they complete their first house. It's what they are in the background. They are, they are that before the event. All right. There's finite understanding in those things. I understand that. God is infinitely and eternally a creator, but the act does not make him who he is. He's unchangeably the creator. And the same is true regarding redemption. Again, turn across to James chapter 1. I keep, again, keep a finger or some sort of marker in John 17. But over in James chapter 1, there's a connection between God giving gifts and God's eternal, unchangeable nature. James chapter 1, again, you'll appreciate the language that's used here, and we know the verse very well. Verse number 17, every good and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning, of his own will begat to us with the word of truth, and that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Again, there are several doctrines contained in those verses, but you'll see in the surface uh, the truth of God's immutability. God is without variableness, neither shadow of turning. But from this unchanging God come these good and perfect gifts. Of course, the greatest of all being Christ Jesus. But the gifts of God come from God's unchangeable character. Again, with the idea we saw last time, that out of God's unchanging will come His works. The works arise out of his will, but his will is that unchanging will of God. And so these things do not, they don't undermine the doctrine of God's immutability. Okay, so that's just an overview regarding the, uh, the basic concept here in terms of, of creation. It's also there. But let's move on to consider the issue of the incarnation. Because again, people have some challenges here. And there are three things I want to do today. I want to acknowledge the concern I want to then affirm the confession, 
And then thirdly, assess the content of Scripture. Again, those last two you may think are back to front. Our confessions should come from Scripture, but I want to show this in this historical context first. And so we'll see confessionally, and then we'll look at the Scriptures as proving the confession to be according to the Word of God. So then, first of all, let's, let's acknowledge the difficulties first. Acknowledge the concern. There are scriptural texts that have language of change connected to Christ's incarnation. Now, some of the heresies are things like, and you might hear this carelessly spoken even in modern churches, Christ laid aside his divine nature coming into this world. Or Christ laid aside his deity as he came into this world. Even language like, Christ must not be supreme being because God is immutable. And so there are those who affirm God's immutability and then say, well, Christ cannot be supreme being because there's change in the person of Christ. And so these things are complex but have to be understood. Tonight we're going to look in John's gospel and we'll see even in John's gospel there's language of change. Again, I'm not going to turn you to those verses right now, but there's language of he came from heaven. He was sent from the Father. That language of, of change in connection with the Lord's coming into the world. He, he was somewhere, now he's here. There's a connection, there's change in terms of the language of the incarnation. But note please John 17 and the verse number 5. One of the most challenging references, again, to the, uh, the truth of uh, the immutability of God and the person of Christ Jesus says, and now, Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Now, if we're not careful, we could define the word glory there and make it synonymous with deity. I've laid aside my deity. Now restore that to me as I enter glory with thee. That's, again, how some people have misunderstood that reference. It's not discussing that, and we're going to uh, come back to that later on. I'm just showing you the language, the concern here. Well, here's a text that does speak of change. Again, you think of that in comparison with Isaiah 53. No form, no comeliness that we should desire him. There's a humility in the world. These are challenging texts. You turn across to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Again, you'll see it here, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Once again, language here of change. The text often preached on at this time of year. It's a, it's a wonderful incarnational text in, in many ways. And it says in 2 Corinthians 8, verse number 9, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. So you see the difficulty, don't you? You see, again, language of change here, his richness and now his poverty. And so what do these things mean? How must we define these things that we don't end up denying the deity of Christ Jesus in light of his immutability? One more reference, and that is a reference in Luke chapter 2 to Christ's mutable humanity. Luke chapter 2. Turn across there, Luke 2 in the verse 52. Again, we're seeing, we're acknowledging that in Jesus Christ incarnate, language is used regarding change. Locational change, you know, doctrinal change, 
uh, or sorry, a glory change in the language of, of John 17. And then Luke 2, 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Just language of increase. We said last time in the doctrine of God's immutability, there is no diminishing, there is no increase. He's perfect being. If there's increase or improvement, then he wasn't perfect beforehand. If there's diminishing, then he ceased to be perfect in the now. And so there can be no change in Jehovah. And here you see, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature. There is change ascribed to Jesus in the page of Scripture. So that's an acknowledgement of the concern. We're not making something up here. I'm not trying to just have a, an incarnational message just to be convenient today. These are things that genuinely cause concern with regards to the doctrine of God's immutability. So let me then affirm the confession. I, again, I apologize. I wanted this on one slide. I know it's very, very small. Uh, you can look it up in some other uh, form, but I'm trying to get it all in one, in one slide. This is known as the Chalcedonian definition, AD 451. It is really the, the final of the church councils with regards to the person of Jesus Christ. And coming on the heels of, of several heresies, you go back to Nicaea in the 300s, uh, they were dealing with the, the, the heresy of Arianism, uh, that the Son of God was not equal with God, uh, created by God. We, we see that in modern days in the language of the Russellites, the Jewish Witnesses still uh, purporting to teach Arian heresy. You have also other heresies that were developing in the early church. Apollinarianism, again, that Jesus Christ had a human body but a divine mind. Again, some understanding or misunderstanding of the nature of, of his two natures. Eutychianism, one nature, a kind of human nature that was assumed by the divine. Or Nestorianism, there were two separate persons. These are, again, these are historical heresies regarding the person of Christ, and they, they're all addressed in this definition. And so let's read it together. Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once, complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body. Okay, so you're getting, again, definitions here affirming against Arianism that Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man, of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead. We use language like co-eternal and co-equal with the Father. Again, affirming the, the, the full deity of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And at the same time of one substance with us as regards his manhood. Like us in all respects, apart from sin, as regards his Godhead, begotten of the Father before the ages. But yet as regards his, as regards, there's a double here. As regards his manhood, begotten, for, sorry, let's try again. As regards his Godhead, begotten of the Father before the ages. Yet as regards his manhood begotten for us men and for our salvation of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten. Again, affirm his language. Again, you'll get different translations of the Chalcedonian definition. I'm just using this one for, uh, for now, but you've got different language used in some of these things. But then it continues. Recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change. Without division, without separation. The distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, 
but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God, the Word, Lord Jesus Christ. Even as the prophets from earliest times spoke of him, and our Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us, and the Creator of Fathers has handed down to us. It's a classic Orthodox definition of the nature of Christ's persons. One person, two natures that are distinct. Not two persons, one person, two natures that are distinct and yet united, inseparable, and yet not confused. It is not the Christ Jesus. It is, if you like, he's not a divine man or a humanized deity. He is God and man in one person forever. Now, having read that, I think it's important because when we think of our own confession of faith, you'll see how closely our confession of faith aligns with that language. Again, back 1640s, Westminster, uh, chapter 8, paragraph 2. And again, this is the confession that we subscribe to as a denomination here. The Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God, of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin. It's a definition of the nature of Christ's humanity. He took on the full properties of humanity. Again, in the catechism, a true human body and a reasonable soul. Again, in, in distinction to some of the heresies that were taught in the, in the former days. Continues, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance, so that two whole, perfect and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person, without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. And you'll see the overlap of the language there between uh, the Chalcedonian definition and also the work of our confession of faith. Two whole, perfect and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, inseparably joined together in one person without Conversion, composition, or confusion. Or conversion there means change. So Christ, taking a human nature, did not change the divine. And so he preserved the doctrine of God's immutability in the person of Christ by affirming afresh that when Christ took on a human nature, there was no change in the divine. He is the eternally unchanging God's. Now, if that is the confessional affirmation, what does the Bible teach regarding this? Well, let's look at just now. I've selected a few of these uh, references just to, to illustrate the point. Turn, please, to Philippians chapter 2. And again, I hope you appreciate, I'm sure you do, the importance of these things. We go wrong in this. We have no gospel. We have no salvation. We have no Lord Jesus Christ. If we're incorrect in small details here, we'll begin to undermine the very gospel. Again, the very simple truth of our reconciliation requires a day's man, a mediator, one who is God and man and can lay his hand upon both. But Philippians chapter 2, again, is again, perhaps the most well-known Christological uh, statement in the Scriptures. And you have, again, the language of Philippians 2, exhorting humility, of course, exhorting Unity in the church through humility. 
It says here in verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And that language is affirming the unchanging deity of Jesus Christ. But the being, if you like, in that past tense sense, who being in the form of God is going to be defined in verse number 7. doesn't say here who is in the form of God. There's a recognition here of a change, but not in deity, but in position and in glory. But it's not a change by subtraction. It's a change by addition. But even the additional change does not remove the deity of Jesus Christ. And so you've got it here in verse number 7. Who being in the form of God, thought not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation high, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. In the form of God equal with God. He does not have to steal equality with God because it is his by right, verse number six. It's not robbery, it's not theft for Jesus Christ to say he's equal with God. He is that by right. And that's unchanging. Again, you begin to deny equality with God, you then, you have to remove the deity of Christ. Again, there are those who have taken verse number seven and taught that very thing. Again, the Lord that's used here Ken Owen, verse number 7, is the basis for a heresy known as the canonic heresy. And the, the idea was there that Christ, in coming to the world, emptied himself of his deity. And they translate the word there in verse number 7 with the thought of emptying himself. But the thought here is not emptying, but actually adding. He makes himself, he humbles himself, our authorized version very helpfully translating the words of no reputation, by taking upon himself the form of a servant. He takes to himself humanity. Humanity is not, it's not mingled or mixed with his deity, but it is a human nature in addition to the divine nature. And so there is, again, change. But not in the divine nature, but change in terms of God coming into this world. A locational change. The Lord can refer to his, his special presence. The Son of God leaves heaven, is sent from heaven into earth. There's a, a change in that sense of location and even a setting aside the privileges of glory. The language used in John 17. There's a setting aside of those, of those things. And we see part of this, uh, we'll see this morning, and we look at the transfiguration in Matthew 17. Uh, you're seeing the Lord, if you like, assuming again the glory of his kingdom. And so the hymn writer, and the hymn writer puts it so very well. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. There is a veiling of his glory in a human nature. That we would look upon him and not be consumed. There's a veiling of the glory of the divine in the person of Jesus Christ. Very God and very man. And yet, at the same time, turn across to John chapter 1. Again, we're going to read John chapter 1 in our morning service again in preparation for the Word. 
And John chapter 1, can you have the well-known text, verse number 14, And the Word was made flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, and the glory as of the only begotten the Father, full of grace and truth. Again, different ideas what it means to behold His glory, but I think the significance is the Mount of Transfiguration. The inner circle beheld His glory. They saw the veil remove for a season upon that mount. They beheld His glory. It is the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. And then verse number 18. No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. Again, here you have the language of being in the bosom of the Father. So, in the one sense, we talk of Christ's special presence on earth. He left heaven. And yet, as the Son of God, He is omnipresent and He is with the Father while still being upon this earth. Challenging concepts, but the language of the Bible is, is very, very clear and very deliberate. And yet, at the same time, as we see Christ coming in our human nature, we see the Bible continues to affirm His divine nature. John chapter 2. Again, we, we don't have time today. This is not the purpose of class to really expound upon the, uh, again, the proof that there is for the deity of Christ. I just picked a couple of, of, of samples, really. Uh, John chapter 2, verse 24. Well, let's read verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem, the Passover and the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men. And need it not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. There are those. And they suggest that the Lord, he knows what's in man in this verse because of, a, of a, an ability to perceive even signs in man. But the verse 23 disallows that thought. The signs in verse 23 are of those who are following the Lord. They believe in His name. There's a public profession. So the only way verse 23 or verse 24 and 25 makes sense is the Lord is able to see through the profession into the unperceived by human man or by, by humanity. Unperceived, if you like, by, by the ability to, to look and observe evidences. He sees beyond that into the heart. Because he is the eternal son of the eternal God. He has the ability of omniscience to know what's in the heart of man. And then over John 18. John 18 and the verse number 6. We often look at this text, you know, when you think of the, 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 the arrest of our Lord Jesus and his willingness to go to the cross. And as soon as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. They come to arrest him. They ask, who are you? Or Jesus says, in whom seek you? Verse 5, they say, Jesus of Nazareth, he says, I am he. The he is in italics. And there's something in the language that he uses and the display of his power and his authority in verse number 6. I am he. And they go backward and fall to the ground. And again, the general orthodox thought there is, it is the Lord unveiling his authority and his glory in those words, I am the eternal and changing God. The language is, I am. Not I was or I will be, I am. I am the eternal God and they fall back in the presence of Jehovah, the unchanging God. But one of the clearest proofs of the unchanging nature of our Lord's divinity and deity 
is the way that Psalm 102 is referred to in Hebrews chapter 1. So turn first to Psalm 102. And this we, we saw last time, this is our, our proof text last Lord's Day, and we thought of the matter of God's immutability. It's the comparison that's used between this created order and the eternal God. Verse number 25, Of old hast thou laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou shalt endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment. As a vesture shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall have no end. Again, it's an assertion of the unchanging being of God. I am Jehovah. Jehovah changes not. But then turn across to Hebrews chapter 1. Keeping in mind, again, those words there in Psalm 102. You have Hebrews chapter 1. And the verse number 10. And it goes up back all the way through that chapter regarding, again, the, the nature of Jesus Christ and his superiority to the angels. Again, to which angels did he say this and say that? Verse, 10, verse 8, unto the Son, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Again, that's also a statement of the unchanging nature of God. And then on down to verse number 10, and thy Lord in the beginning has laid the foundation of the earth. And the heavens are the work of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest. And they shall all wax old as of the garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels saith, at any time sit on my right hand. He's, he's merging Psalm 102, then with Psalm 110. And he's making the point that Jesus Christ is the one referred to in the Psalm 102. Verse number 12 is true of Jesus. It's not true of any angel. He is superior to the angels in that he is the eternal, unchanging God. That's one of the foundational truths regarding his superiority. He's not created like the angels. He's the uncreated, eternal God. And that's so important regarding the gospel. Because turn across to Hebrews chapter 13. Remember the same book. The same letter, the same author, drawing together these truths. Verse 8, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Again, please note clearly, the word Jesus is used here. The name that is first given to him at his birth under the command of God, he is Jesus the Christ, and he is the same yesterday and today and forever. Now, you have to do some exegetical somersaults to make that apply to a created being. And yet the Aryans, they do their best to make that true, or make that statement. But it is a statement, when you compare chapter 1, it is a statement of the eternal, unchangeable deity of Jesus Christ. He is the unchanging God. And upon that, I urge you to set your soul. His truth abides forever. He will never deny himself. He is the unchanging Christ. His merits, they are the merits of an unchanging priesthood. He is the eternal God, the Savior of mankind. Yes, I'll take some comments and questions. Yeah, George.
Yeah. No, so, George, and for those watching or listening, George mentioned there's no, there's no human natural analogy in, in this world. Um, but if I can take your thought, George made the thought of a general who rules the, if you like, the, the, the army and then steps into the role of a soldier in that in the conflict. Um, what we do see in the scriptures is that Jesus Christ, as he comes, assumes the role of Messiah. So he takes to himself roles, uh, offices, that become his in his humanity. He becomes prophet, priest, and king. He is eternally sovereign, but he takes himself these roles, and then through obedience, he's exalted and given that name above every name. And so we see humiliation, because what you're seeing in Philippians 2 is really humiliation to exaltation. So we can see the language of role being taken, that he takes himself of a, a new role. And so people wonder, how is Christ, how is he reigning now that he wasn't reigning before? Well, he's reigning eternally as the Son of God. But the reign that we refer to Christ now is that mediatorial messianic reign that comes in virtue of his obedience to the, the mission that God gave to him and which he was sent into the world to accomplish. So, yeah, there are no, no analogies. And that's why, same as tr- the, the Trinity, People try to illustrate the Trinity in various ways to, to bring it down to children's understandings. And so it is with the, the, the theanthropic person of Christ Jesus. He's God and man, two distinct natures, one person. There, there is no equivalent. And so you find yourself saying, can I explain this? To a degree, we can explain what the Bible says about it. Can I illustrate it? Not really, but I can state it. And so you have these, that's why I use the confessions. We have these historical confessional statements defining this is what we teach in this area. And we affirm it again. We say, amen, this is the word of God. And we pray that by God's grace, we will not uh, move away from those things. You know what it says in verse number nine? Be not carried away with divers and strange doctrines. You know, the devil will seek to undermine the person of Christ because it undermines the gospel. So let's be firm, be strong, affirm these things today again. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see Heal the incarnate deity. And may God help us to worship him afresh today for his glory and for his name's sake. Let's bow together, please, in prayer at this time. We'll come back to these other challenges in a few weeks' time. We'll come back to these things and consider them in more detail. Eternal God and Father, we look to thee again. We thank you again for the opportunity to reconsider the, the, the challenging and yet glorious doctrines of Jesus Christ. He came into the world to save sinners. We thank you, God, that we who have come to know him, we've come to understand these things to some degree. We see the Bible teaching the humanity and the deity of our Lord Jesus. We affirm these things again today. We praise you, Lord, for your wisdom and bring about such a plan of redemption that we can be reconciled to God. Help us, God, to worship thee in a a worthy manner, to exalt your name. Guard us, God, from every strange doctrine. Help us to stray on the straight path of the word of God and that we would glorify thee in our lives and with our lips. Bless our worship today. Help us, O God, to honor thee in all of our ways. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.